Go with me to John chapter 18, would you please? John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of this 18th chapter of John's gospel today. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1, John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, remember chapter 17, high priestly prayer of Christ. Jesus had been praying in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We enter chapter 18 of John's Gospel this morning, and we enter directly into the last chapter of Jesus' life where we will see his betrayal and his crucifixion. In John chapter 17, we have the intercession of Christ for his followers. He prays for them. He prays for all who will follow him. In chapter 18, we find the beginning of his sacrifice for his disciples and for all who would believe in him. We're going to see today the betrayal of Christ from three perspectives in our text. I want you to see the betrayal of Christ from three different perspectives, the, the perspectives of three individuals we see here in the text. And the question I think we're going to be faced with is, which are we? Which are you? Which perspective are you living? Here's the first perspective. The first perspective of the betrayal of Christ is seen from the life of Judas. Judas. Look at Judas. He and the others walked with Christ. Think of it. Judas was numbered among the twelve. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He walked with Christ and sat under his teaching. 
He even ministered in Jesus' name with the other disciples for three years. But look at what happens in the end with Judas. In the end, he proved himself to be an unbeliever. We're told in verse 2 that Judas knew the place where Jesus would be. And what did Judas do? He knew the place and he led those who would torture and crucify Christ right to him. We're told in verse 2 that Judas knew the place, and not only that, we're told in verse 7 that Judas was standing with those who had come to take Jesus away. Judas, how did you get there? How did you come to this point in your life? How does one get here? How does one who walks with Christ for three years of his ministry on earth, witnessing the miracles of Christ and the powerful teaching of Christ, actually stoop to this lowest of lows, betraying Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes about how one gets to this point. He writes about the fall of Judas with a warning for all of us. From the highest degree of privilege down to the lowest depth of sin, there is but a succession of steps. Privileges misused seem to paralyze the conscience. He's right. How does one arrive at such a low? One step at a time. One compromise after another. Until... The heart and the mind has surrendered full control to the grip of sin. How do you get there? You get there one step at a time. There's a warning for us here, I think. There's a warning if we think we'll be saved by our religious knowledge. I mean, Judas had religious knowledge, don't you think? Having walked with Christ for three years, he could walk the, he could, he could talk the talk, but he wasn't walking the walk, was he? He could talk the talk. He had religious knowledge. Judas had religious knowledge, but religious knowledge obviously does not save us. You may come to church regularly. You may, I mean, we put books on the table back there from the church library and say, read these to help yourself walk with Christ, to help point you back to the truths of scriptures. You may even read some of those good books we put on the table. You may pick up a Bible reading plan, go through the motions using it throughout the year. You may know a lot about the Bible. You may even sound very knowledgeable and learned about the Bible when you speak to others. But none of that is what saves you. You realize that? Nor does religious practice save you. You know the kinds of things that appear to be religious in nature? You know those kinds of things like going to church? That looks religious, right? We go to church, but going to church doesn't save us. We listen to the preaching, but listening to the preaching doesn't save us. Giving when the offering plate is passed, helping around the church when asked, those things don't save you. They, in... uh, in practice, are only religious practice if that's as far as they go. If those things don't spring from the attitude of the heart, all they are is just religious mumbo-jumbo. 
going through the motions. None of those things save you. It's not that these things aren't important for the Christian to practice. It's not that there aren't some things that we are to obey as God's people and we practice them because we, we love God and we want to honor Him by our obedience and because ultimately obeying Him is what's best for us. But for the one who does not have faith in Christ, those kinds of things just kind of work a salve on our consciences. They make us feel better when we're dying of cancer from within, the cancer of sin. They make you feel good about yourself when in truth you're not walking with Christ, not trusting fully in His finished work on the cross. That was Judas. On the outside, he looked okay. On the inside, he was dead. Judas arrived at the point of betrayal of Christ where verse 3 says of him, he was, he was willing to lead those who would take Jesus by force and would cruelly treat him and would unjustly convict him of something he was not guilty and crucify him. And verse 3 says, having procured a band of soldiers, here comes Judas and some, so, some soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with them and with lanterns and torches and weapons. And he stood with them. And he arrived at this day and this time and this place by only going through the motions outwardly. There was no inward change for Judas. And as Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us, that could be any one of us. Judas simply followed the natural leanings of his heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He just went in the natural way he would go without Christ. The natural leanings of his heart, he followed them instead of believing in Instead of trusting in, instead of following Jesus, he went the way of his heart without Christ. Perspective number two. There's also the perspective of Peter at the betrayal of Christ. Now, Peter was not like Judas. He certainly wasn't without faith. He trusted in Christ, but we we do know that he will soon be the one who denies Christ, won't he? In fact, we're going to see it here in chapter 18. But before that, we have this glimpse of Peter as, as the men gather around Christ to take him away to be tried. We have this glimpse of Peter. Some would see Peter as, as one who is acting with great boldness and, and courage, defending his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And on the surface, we would think that too, because, I mean, look at all the soldiers, the well-armed soldiers standing around, and what does Peter do? He pulls out a short sword against all these trained killers. <laughs> what was Peter thinking? <laughs> what was Peter thinking when he took out his short sword and lopped off the ear of Malchus? Well, we can't know for sure what Peter was thinking, but I think we get a glimpse of what he was thinking in what Jesus says to him here in the text. It's likely that Peter was acting out of fear. I think Peter was acting out of fear. 
He was afraid of losing Jesus. He was afraid of losing Christ. And think about us. Think about what happens to us when we start acting out of fear. What are we doing? We're no longer walking by faith, are we, when we begin to act out of fear. The natural response of the heart leads to fear, and then that fear leads to just a reaction instead of trusting and resting in faith in what God has for us. So what was it Jesus said to Peter that would lead us to believe Peter was acting out of fear and not faith? We hear it in verse 11 when Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, put that thing away. <laughs> and then these solemn words, this, these wonderful words, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. This is part of God's plan, Peter. Quit taking this situation into your own hands. Put that thing away. Jesus had been warning Peter, warning the others for some time now that his time was near and that he would not always be with them. But in spite of all that, Christ told them, the disciples, they would, they would all flee. He had warned them. He, he had warned Peter. You think you're strong? You think you'll die for me? You think you're ready? In spite of everything that Christ had told the disciples, they still had a hard time believing that this confrontation with the authorities could possibly be part of God's plan. This couldn't be part of what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about going somewhere we couldn't go, but this can't be this, this can't be that, this can't be part of that plan. And in Peter's actions, I think we can see ourselves at times, maybe more often than we like. Would you go with me to Romans chapter 7 for a moment? Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I want, I want to look together at verses 18 through 25. You see, I think we can see ourselves in Peter's actions more often than we like. It's the same thing Paul writes of, speaking of the common weakness of every believer when he says here in Romans chapter 7, in verses 18 through 25, verse 18, Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this precious verse 25, 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, you can hear it from Paul. Paul had come to this point in his walk with Christ that he realized he was a man torn between his own flesh, his own sinful flesh, and the Spirit of God working in him the righteousness of Christ. But as he says in verse 25, and as we can say with Paul in verse 25, when he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? He answers himself in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He was confident of that, that the thanks goes to Jesus Christ for saving him from himself, saving him from his sin. He was confident of that, and he was trusting in Christ, and he was seeking to walk in obedience to Christ. Judas never reached that point. He never turned to Christ in faith, turning from the controlling powers of his sinful self. But praise God, Peter had faith. The one who would show his weakness many times, yet he had faith. And what we see Paul dealing with in Romans 7 is the thing I think Peter is dealing with and the thing that we deal with. He was the best, he was the best of disciples in being, you know, quick to make decisions. He was right here with the sword, ready to defend his Savior. He has the best of intentions. And in an earlier study, of course, we heard him declare his allegiance to Christ back in John chapter 13 and verse 37, saying, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you? Because he knows what we're going to see here in chapter 18. And yes, Peter shows some of that willingness to lay down his life for Christ, but very soon we will see him deny his Savior. His heart is in the right place. But here he is in chapter 18, and his passions get the best of him, and he's not walking fully by faith. And so he strikes out at Malchus, and he cuts off his ear, and we're often more like Peter than we want to be, right? We're the ones with the short sword, (laughs) striking at ears acting out in the flesh, not living by faith, thinking we can fix our present troubles without the Lord's help. I'll take care of this. Stand back, right? And all the while, Jesus must step in and graciously remind us, as he did Peter on that night, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's also a third perspective. And it's the perspective of Jesus at his own betrayal. Jesus shows the disciples how he would have them and us respond when faced with trouble. Knowing what Jesus is going to go through, we would say Jesus is in trouble. Knowing what the disciples are going to go through, we would say the disciples are in trouble. Peter's response was to draw the sword, not Jesus. 
Note the courage and faith which Christ had in the Father's plan. As Judas, with the soldiers and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and weapons, verse 4 says, Then Jesus, listen carefully, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Obviously, they were looking for him, and they say so. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth is who we are looking for. Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they do that? Weren't they there in great force? Yes, they were. Why did they fall to the ground? It may have been that they were overcome with his presence. Some think it's possible that they were surprised that it was finally the one that they were looking for and they were ready for a fight and so they fell back to a defensive position. Not sure I can swallow that one. A well-trained force like this, many soldiers, well-armed, armed for battle and battle-hardened men. I think it's more likely it's the former, that they are overcome by the powerful presence of Christ as he declares, it is he. I'm the one. And I think we see just a little thread, just a little sliver of the power of God in Christ as they are overwhelmed with his simple word, it's me, you're looking for me. They can't help themselves. They're overwhelmed. They momentarily fall back, but Christ is not about to pass through their midst without anyone laying a hand on him this time. In fact, there would be no fight either. Jesus would see to that. He would willingly surrender to them because doing so was part of the Father's plan. And so verse 7 says, So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Again, here's Jesus graciously looking out for his disciples, seeking their liberty, though he would not take his own. And then in verse 11, again, the words of Christ to Peter remind us that Jesus is completely yielded to the Father's will, saying, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in the response of Christ, I think, we find the heart of God for all his children. God's desire is that all his children follow in the steps of God the Son fully yielded to the Father's will and walking in faith. Which perspective is yours? In the troubles you face, in the trials that weigh on your heart, Did you know that God's desire is that you and I have the perspective of the Son? God's desire is that we learn from God the Son. 
facing with faith the cup the Father has given us? Do you see your trials in that light? Do you see your troubles from that perspective? Or are you going with the crowd like Judas, looking for a way of escape? Are you going with Peter who would strike out, trying to make his own way? Or will you be like the son who would say, how could I not take the cup the Father has given me to drink? Aren't you thankful to God that the son did not refuse to drink the cup? I'm so glad. We have everything to be thankful for that the son did not refuse to drink the cup. In just a moment, we're going to share a cup at the communion table. We're going to pass those little cups of grape juice, and we're going to be able to take the cup, celebrating the fact that Jesus drank the cup the Father had given him to drink. Of course, the cup we drink commemorates his shed blood. Do we not? We take the cup and we remember and we thank him that he did not say, none for me, thank you, to the Father.